but again, where else do you go? Like, do I go to a bunch of commodities with your crazy theorem about what's happening to cooling 80 years out? I'm not ready to go there yet. Dude, 120 year old Terrence is going to be nice and chill. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Boom. So how's it going? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's solid, I'll tell you. You know why it's solid? Why? Because last week, we talked about George Washington, and now he's blessed us with his birthday. And so we got a three-day weekend, man. And that that's worth all the gold in the world. <laughs> Thanks, George. You know what else is solid? Uh, we kind of officially hit the interwebs last week. And uh, we blew up in Guatemala, man. I mean, did you see that? This podcast, yeah, well, maybe I'm making this up, but I'm pretty sure it's the number one talking of investing podcast in Guatemala. Straight from, from our mouths to the earbuds of the Guatemalans, man. Um, lots of good content awesome. out there this week. What are we diving into? Um, there, there is there's some some goodness in the fishbowl. Here, here's the thing, because you know I I went I went into so I dove with my swan song into the fishbowl. Yeah, went down a deep deep path that was based on a conversation we had a few weeks ago, and that's going to lead into a quiz for you. I don't know if you want to start with that or if you want to hit that in the middle. Yeah, you call, man. Um, Dougal's, for those who don't know, is our official research associate of the podcast, and he just crushes his stuff. He's in line for a promotion, I think, for this research he's pumping out. I just got big. You promise? <laughs> yeah, I promise. All right, let, let's, uh, let's, get into that in the, <laughs> let's dive into that in the middle. Um, first, hop into the fishbowl. So we've, from the beginning, we've stated, this is not a Bitcoin podcast. However, Bitcoin comes up every week. Because <laughs> it just, yeah. it, it's it like just the most the consistent thing that we talk about because it's all everywhere. Exactly. Um, what What are your thoughts on one thing that happened this week is our friend, our good friend, Mr. Musk uh, and his firm Tesla put down $1.5 billion to buy Bitcoin. What are your thoughts? Oh, man. Well, this is this is crazy interesting. And actually, I'm going to have to I got a quiz for you. If you're going Bitcoin early, we're going to sneak this in. But uh, uh, so. Man, I, you know, I, I'm conservative. I, I think doing this with your business is a very interesting play. You know, so there is some very influential and, and very smart people that um, are hashtag Bitcoin on Twitter, right? I mean, from Jack Dorsey to Musk to others. Um, I know I would not do this with my company's funds, but I, I think let's look at the motivations here because it's got to be a little bit self-serving. Um, he's been a big Bitcoin and crypto guy for a long time. And so if you can plow 1.5 billion into it and give it credibility, I mean, the thing with Tesla and all the shorts, you remember when Musk sold the short shorts on the Tesco Tesla website? Do you remember this? The Daisy Dukes? Yeah, pretty much. No. Oh yeah. He did this like a year ago to make fun of the short sellers on Tesla because he was in not the same as a GameStop pinch, but there was a lot of shorts on Tesla because the valuation hasn't made any sense for a long time, right? Yep. 
And so, but he's just like grown and innovated his way out of all the negative publicity and sometimes facts. And so it's rightful for him to have the perspective of just like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and screw you and you're going to eat it. So I think he's doing that a little with Bitcoin. He's been uh, pushing it for years. The scary thing to me is he bought it at an all-time high, effectively. Like, are we really going to look back in five years and say this is a good use of Tesla's excess capital? I can't imagine that we are. Yeah, the the thing is, though, this um, maybe there's a different version of the lottery ticket conversation we're having, but I'm going to say it's more like wildcard conversation. Is Elon just seems to be, he seems like he buys into this, like, I'm Stony Tark, Stony Tark? excuse me, I'm, I'm t- Tony Stark, right? Mentality of I'm the genius of our world yeah. and I can do what I want. It's like, it's like, this is a game. You all are just puppets that I'm playing with. Like, sometimes it feels that way. Like when you think about, um, was that middle of last year when he went out and tweeted, like my stock's too expensive. Yes. Right? Like oh, th- yeah. that, that kind of stuff is like, I feel like is just a bit disrespectful of like the investment game. Now he's just playing around. Right. But you, if you're seeing, no, if you're the he, world's no, richest he, person, no, he, I, I believe he believes that his stock is too expensive. Yes. I'm is. not. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, but I, my, my point is regardless of that, when you, uh, from a fiduciary responsibility standpoint, like you can't just be playing out in the market. And I feel like sometimes he, he, it seems like he's just playing. Well, but let me give you the flip side. Right. So, um, Okay, uh, the best podcast this week, sorry, Doogles, but the best podcast that came out was uh, Meb Faber and Jeremy Grantham of GMO. Are we going to talk about fabulous. that? That's in my fishbowl. Oh, gosh, I'm going to drop some quotes. Brilliant. Uh, they they talked a lot about my, well, they talked about everything, mostly how valuations are crazy, and I know we're going to get to that with the hedging conversation. But Grantham was like, listen, this is crazy. Month, uh, Musk has gone from, I don't know, a fairly rich dude to one of the world's richest dudes. So if you buy that, and he knows because he knows his stock is overvalued, that he has a lot of funny money right now. If he can take some of his wealth and distribute it to an asset that he has more faith in than gold, I'm not saying the world should agree with him, but that makes a ton of sense because he's going, hey, things are overvalued. My personal wealth is overvalued. How can I hedge against this? So in a way, he's just been listening to the Skippy and Doodles podcast and uh, he he's just following his our advice here, right? Um, it's just a hedge for him. I think it's incredibly cavalier to do it with your company's money, but he's been inca- incredibly cavalier pretty much his entire life, I'm sure. Yeah, I think some of what you what you were just saying is is part of my point, is that like even in, in what you were stating there, you were saying that he's trying to hedge his own portfolio. Now, as a as Elon Musk, that makes a lot of sense. But you have to say, like, I'm actually the CEO of one of the most valuable companies in the world that is publicly traded. And that is a to, to me. Right. And maybe I'm stuck back in the, you know, the the old times. Right. And I'm not modern and hip with it, although I've been on the TikTok investor. So I'm hip. With uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but maybe, you know, maybe I'm just not thinking of the way the stock market works today or something. But I feel like being cavalier and being CEO of one of the most valuable companies in the world, where a lot of people, um, their individual stock picks, their um, their four hundred one ks, their IRAs, etc., hold your stock. Like, don't be don't be trying to hedge your own portfolio. And you, it's easy. It's you can easily play this off. You can say everything that you just said. 
but uh, but instead put in like Tesla's value right into yeah, that. But I just sure. don't think that's actually the way he thinks. Like I think he does view himself as the the Tony Stark, who I understand how the world works. You guys don't. I'm gonna puppeteer. I'm gonna do what's best for me. You'll play along because I can get you to do whatever whatever I want. Like that that's the way sometimes I think he plays with it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm happy I'm not a Tesla shareholder, although I think I am because you are S&P and I was forced to buy it in my index funds. And uh, yeah, that's ridiculous. But uh, OK, so didn't it wasn't there also some pitch about them moving towards accepting Bitcoin uh, in to purchase their products? Tesla? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I didn't hear that. I think that might have been part of that. I mean, that makes no sense because Bitcoin's so volatile that it can be used as a currency. It um okay, so let me let me add on to this because I think this is relevant and I got a the world's hottest game. It's taking the world by storm and it's uh, specially crafted for you. So your job, Dougals, is to tell me if this is a real cryptocurrency or a fake cryptocurrency. Are you ready? Hit it. All right. First wrapped bitcoin not bitcoin wrapped bitcoin you mean like or like christmas time with a w fake oh that's real baby um how about tron fake tron tron is real with a market cap of four billion dollars just so you know um how about the graph fake the graph is real. I'm supposed to have a 50-50 chance here. And this is this game is rigged. How about bit dollar? Fake. That one's fake. You, you got one right. I'm ding, so ding, proud ding, of you. Ding, ding. <laughs> How about uh, just a few more? Because I love this. Um S-O-E. Real. Fake. Oh. How about uh here, what's it called? It's called. I got this is playing out like my March Madness picks. Uh, Crypto.com coin. I hope that's fake. Oh, it's real. As is Compound, as is Chainlink, Litecoin. Fascinating space. So we're, we're going to continue to dive in more because it's so freaking hot right now. We won't do it on this episode, but I've been doing a lot of crypto research on the side. And uh, I think. I've heard some requests on the pod to do a little deeper dive there. So uh, it, that was pretty much the best quiz ever because I think you failed miserably. I really, that was, that was sad. I always do not come to me with any crypto advice. Do not, <laughs> do not. But do you think it would be helpful to hit on that, that Grantham um, podcast first in order to get into hedging? Okay, so or the, do you hedging the Grantham first? leads into hedging, right? Um, so uh, one, he talks about being a kind, kind of old pro at bubbles and having phone calls with uh other people that share his opinion he was saying last year everyone thought this might be 1929 now everyone thinks this is um kind of the year 2000 which is a genuine genuinely impressive bubble um i'll add that he is often or sometimes called a perma bear like he typically makes these proclamations that we're in a bubble a little bit too soon but that's the thing about a bubble. You don't know the timing of it, right? Um, so he they dove specifically into the interest rate mark, uh, argument, right? A lot of people have been saying, well, listen, interest rates are so low that there's nowhere else to put your money. And I liked this retort. He talked about 
interest rates being lower in the rest of the world um, for almost a longer time, like more like the last couple of years, yet the rest of the world is still um, probably the best place to find value in equities right now. Yeah. Um, although he, he said, I think he actually talked about how the rest of the world is also, or not the rest, but there are places that are also expensive, just not as expensive as the U.S. And so it wasn't like it was cheap versus versus expensive. It was just saying less expensive. And so interest rates have yeah. still increased, right? Other equity markets as well. Yes, that, that is true. Um, and then the last thing on the interest rate market margin, he talked about uh, kind of the rebuttal to what I just said, which is he's often been a little too early to, to predict things, um, but he's just doing it based on valuation. So I'd argue he's doing it right. But he's saying, you know, if a year ago he said things are looking a little frothy and people go, yeah, but look what Tesla did in the last year or look what Bitcoin did in the last year or whatever. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't mean it just cause the market's going up does not mean the market's not overvalued. You know, uh, sometimes short-term movements of the market are nonsensical. It, that's not a great retort to the fact that things are crazy right now. Spot. Can you say that in a different way? Uh, yeah. So, uh, if you look at Japan in the '90s when it went to a cape of like I think 65, that was also talked about in the yep. episode. I mean, if it got to a cape of 50, which would have been an all-time high, and you said, "Hey, thing, it looks bubbly here," and then it still went up from a 50 to a 65. That, that does not mean you didn't make the right call when it got to 50 because it came all the way back down to like 15 when it yeah. corrected, right? That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I think that, and that's uh, even using the US examples, right? If you look at where things were um, in, I think the start of 98, right? Is when Cape crossed 39, right? Which is which was the top in, in 29. I think it was something like that. In 1998, yeah. you get back to that in 2010 for S&P 500 uh, specifically. Right. So you, you have to wait. So even if you got out in 98 and people were like, well, then you missed 99. Right. Yeah, sure. But I could have bought in, I could have bought 12 years later and still been at the same point. <laughs> right. It's a, it's interesting. And then there, we've talked about Cisco in the past, right, where when Cisco was about $600 billion, I think at the peak of 2000 is never, it hasn't hit that again. Yes. Um, Qualcomm is another stock that gets brought up a lot in 2000 because it was Qualcomm, I think is fascinating. Sorry, I'm going off on tangents. Hey, Qualcomm, I, I own Qualcomm, so go yeah. for it. Uh, Qual Qualcomm, I think, is really fascinating because even in 2000, like Qualcomm is a like a like a very good company. Like it's a really solid company. As a Cisco, I'm not saying Cisco's not, yeah. but Qualcomm is a really solid company. And just looking at that from a business perspective, it's like brilliant. Like it sits at the center of all the things that make the world move. Yeah. Um, but even Qualcomm didn't get back to its point in 2000 until like a couple of years ago. And but at least it's hit it. Uh, and, and now it's a stock, you know, folks are, are talking about again, but well, so I mean, I'd wrap with just saying the thing that's different about 2000 from Grantham's perspective is like, there were some places to hide, whether it's bonds or elsewhere, there were some places to hedge right now. There's not really. And I know that that ties into the he hedging conversation you want to have. So he talked about, Hey, if, if bond rates are at 6%, you know, at least you're doubling every 12 years. Um, Right now, if something's compounding around 3%, you're doubling every 24 years. Like, that's not, 
you're not going to be happy with 3% for the next 24 years. So you got to kind of get creative in terms of where you're going to look uh, for some safety here. I'm going to, it's a paraphrase, but I'll call it a quote from, uh, for your, your boy Vital, uh, Vitaly, yeah. um, Vitaly, Vitaly Nelson. What a good guy. Oh, wow. That was, that was endearing the way you just stated that. It's like your, your uncle Joe. Yeah, um, basically. Yeah. So, so one thing that, uh, that I heard Vitaly say, uh, recently was when, when you buy in blindly to a company independent of price, that they're believing that time has no value which I thought was, it's like a really interesting statement. Meaning that like, if you buy great companies, we talked about Qualcomm at the wrong time, right? Um, you're not taking into account like any sort of uh, discounted cash flow valuation. You're not taking into account the additional capital that it might, it might take for them to, time and capital that might take for them to grow in, right, to their pants. They're trying to put on big boy pants valuations, but you need, you need to be able to buy the pants, right? So meaning like, for example, if we just take Tesla, right? Let me use that as an example. Even if you believe that Tesla's current valuation is justified because of self-driving cars in the future, because of their battery business in the future, et cetera, what you're not taking into account is that it might take a decade of investment for them to get there. And so now there's additional expenses, additional cash they're putting out before they can get to this valuation. Like, so I, I just thought that was really smart of him saying, like, you're believing that time has no value if you're buying into a company, waiting for long periods of time for it to grow into where it is today. All right, dig into that fishbowl. Let's talk about some hedging. You wanna talk about hedging? Yeah. Let's talk sure. about hedge, baby. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about what hedging is and how you should think about it. And then we can yeah. dive into some ways to do it. Um, so I'm gonna spit some hot lyrics and then you, you, can, you can dive in. History lesson, give it to me. Oh, no, it's not a history lesson. It's just a, uh, this is Webster, Merriam-Webster type situation. Um, so hedging generally is when if you hold assets and then you say, I want to I want to bet, um, I want insurance. That's a good way to think about it. I want insurance uh, on this asset to say, if this goes down, I would like to own something else that could then offset or balance out um, my overall portfolio risk. So that that's the purpose of hedging is that insurance play. And there are many ways that you can do it. And some of the ways that, that people think about hedging are uh, shorting, right? So betting against something. Um, they buy similar or non-similar stocks, right? So you, you can say, I'm going to buy something in a different industry or related industry or an industry that will do well if this doesn't. Um, people can buy options, puts or calls. Uh, gold has been one. Cash has been one. People think about real assets, which could be real estate or commodities, uh, depending on what the situation is. Yeah. Um, so th those are like, those are some of the plays. And then more recently, people talk about Bitcoin being the new gold. And so you can say cryptos in general can be something that that people could could use to. Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest or the most common is owning bonds. And typically, um, those are either investment grade corporate bonds or US government or another entity, um, another large government entity. Um, so you go back to like the intelligent investor, Benjamin Graham, a book uh, that is uh, full of wisdom. And the recommendation there is commonly that you hold, you should hold about 70% equities and 30% bonds. So I'd say that's the most traditional, uh, right? A lot of your basic retirement target funds end up somewhere around 60-40. We've talked about that in the past. I'd say that's the most traditional. And that's really the one that I've leveraged most heavily. 
How about you, Douglas? I my portfolios are aggressive. Like there's there's zero hedge. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about zero hedge, the like right wing libertarian newsletter. If, <laughs> if people want to go and read that, you can. Um, generally speaking, in my portfolios, I'm pretty concentrated. Um, and yep. so there isn't a lot of hedging, but I've been thinking about it more recently. I guess you can say there's a natural hedge because part of my portfolio is cash. Like I have cash sitting in the, uh, in the investment account. But yep. what I've been looking at recently um, and started dipping my toe in the water and it felt a little bit warm. So I put my ankle in <laughs> is uh, commodities. Um, yeah. And so the, the thought process there being in a, in a world where there are economies that are trying to come back up and catch up with pent up demand, they're going to need real assets to get that done. That's, that's a part of it. Um, and so meaning like, I need China, I'm China, I need copper. Who's got my copper so I can build stuff, right? Like that, that's yeah. one side of it. Yeah. Uh, another side of it is um, I actually bought into a, not investment advice, I bought into uh, a uranium company. Um, just thinking about building out, there's a, in my non-model portfolio, there's a significant chunk that is I'm holding for very long term that's around energy. And it's, uh, it's in clean energy and HVAC. It's like where I have a bunch of stuff. Um, and then thinking Wait, about the uranium. Yeah, while we're in the fishbowl, HVAC? HVAC? Dude, it's going to be hot! <laughs> this is the, the simplest thesis of all yeah. time for me. Just, it's, just it's, it's, this simple. Okay. it's this simple. In 80 years, like in 80 years, there are going to be parts of this globe that are going to be uninhabitable. Right now, it's going to heat up. It's going to heat up between now and then. If you tell me climate change ain't real, I will jump. Remember those devil twins from SNL? Um, no, <laughs> so, no but honestly, on honestly, it's a it's like a really simple thesis that like climate change is real. The uh, the world's heating up, and I actually think that like um, cooling systems are going to be in some parts of the world are going to be really really critical. So like I have long term position will not sell for a long time in uh, in in cooling technologies. HVAC, yes, HVAC. I'm I'm climbing up in your ducts. Give me that duct tape. Um, but anyway, so the there's an energy like general energy play, and so I bought into a company with uranium. Uranium's used for uh, for nuclear fission, right? And thinking about yeah. um, being able to to use that uh, for for heating and cooling situations. So, but I've been looking at commodities, and I only it's a like tiny tiny uh, percent of portfolio. Like I just I put a little bit into five different plays because I haven't played in this world before, and I'll kind of yeah. see what's uh, what's going on. But that's one hedge I've been thinking about recently. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. I can't claim to be a commodities expert uh, in any way, shape, or form. I've been playing around with uh, doing some research on uh, basically shorting the S&P as a hedge because what we talk about. <laughs> look at that look on Dougal's face. Holy cow. Um, just, just for the record, I've called this out before. Skippy is Mr. Long Pants, always putting on the long pants. He's like, you got to be long, got to be long, got to bet on America. Now he's putting on them Daisy Dukes. He, he's like, Dukes a hazard, baby. Well, let me finish this sentence because theoretically, when you talk about how overvalued things have been, uh, you, you say it's going down. And how did I ride that? What, what I've gathered so far in that early research, uh, my favorite short of the S&P, even though I don't own it, I think it's SPDN. Um, is it gives you more risk than owning like U.S. government bonds uh, without, the, I mean, they're not paying a dividend or anything else. And there's really no upside appreciation unless the world falls off a cliff. So in a normal case, you know, uh, on average, the stock market, the U.S. stock market 
does somewhere between seven and 10% returns per year. If you bet against it, you're going to lose on average somewhere in that range. Call it, you're going to lose 10% a year. I, I think you market. also, when you short an index, I think you do have to pay the dividends. Oh yeah. I, th- yeah, I think you do. Well, Check yeah. So that's baked into the price movement. It's not like they, yeah, yeah but, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you look at asset correlation assumptions and I'll, I'll put this out on the Twitter account um, at Skippy Dougals also hit us up there for uh, requests on future content. But uh, like, so if you just look at basic us government bonds correlation to us stocks, it's uh, at negative 0.64, right? So in a lot of cases, if the U.S. stock market goes down 10%, my bond holdings in a basic long-term treasury are going to go up 6.4%. To me, that still ends up making a little more sense because I get some of that downside protection, but I also ride a little upside in the sense that they're going to pay me a 2% dividend on that. So as much as I've done research a, a little more recently, you know, I haven't done heavy research on hedging and diversification in probably at least five years, if not 10 years. Um, I still think I'm going to end up in the generic bond market. Now, what's different, we just talked about it, is bond rates are so low that really if the U.S. stock market crashes, say 20% or more, like I think U.S. long-term treasury interest rates and we've talked about this before interest rates and price for bond holdings move in opposite directions um are gonna end up negative and i don't particularly love that investment thesis but again where else do you go like do i go to a bunch of commodities with your crazy theorem about what's happening to cooling 80 years out i'm not ready to go there yet dude 120 year old terrence is gonna be nice and chill (laughs) nice and chill. yeah true you're gonna be like (laughs) I'm going to dig into the fishbowl for a moment and pull something out uh, about our good friend, uh, Roaring Kitty, right? Yes. Roaring Kitty is the, the YouTube. Boy. My boy, Roaring. Is that Roaring? I don't think it's Roaring. But anyway, so Roaring <laughs> Kitty uh, is the YouTube name. AKA um, Deep Effing Value as well. Exactly. Yeah. Th- this, is the, this is one of those people that made boat tons of money off GameStop. He went in with yeah. something like fifty thousand uh, dollars that he put into uh, to options at GameStop and came out with I think around forty eight million. I mean something crazy. A lot Is that of public knowledge now? Okay, let's let's yeah. call it. He he rolled a fifty to a fifty. So apparently this dude is a registered securities broker that worked for Mass Mutual. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think I think they're in some trouble. Yeah. So the 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 question is, and does Mass Mutual actually go after him? So he's left. Right. Uh, he was a, a wealth advisor there. Um, he left. I think it could be a little bit dangerous for them to try and play that game in going after uh, going after this boy. I mean, you would hope that cooler heads can prevail. Right. Like, I don't know that he really did any harm to Mash, Mass Mutual or his or clients there. Um, do you think I, I would support I almost always support in life like the most uh, kindergarten like solution in terms of hey, can we apologize and uh, go play on the slides together? Like, let's make it happen. There doesn't have to be anything crazy going on here. So you're, you're, uh, you believe that Mass Mutual is like the inverse of China. Do you think Mass Mutual is just like, if you want to come hey, over, have some uh, tea. Jack Ma was, a, yeah, yeah. Jack Ma was apparently seen on a golf course this week. Was it just 
just to tie that loop together from episode three. But uh, yeah, I, I no, I'm not saying. I think Mass Mutual's lawyers are probably all up in people's grill and everyone's hollering, and the CEO is probably upset. I mean, this is corporate America. But no, I think generally, like, it's not going to do any good. Just, just find the most peaceful resolution. Maybe find someone a few bucks and move on. All right. Okay. Oh, a few episodes ago, we talked about the, the best performing companies, right? Of all time. Yes. Right. Um, a few episodes ago, we also talked about the, uh, the world's richest people. You were saying uh, you brought up Standard Oil and you were saying like, what if, uh, what if we looked at, what if you looked at instead of the world's richest people over time, what were the world's like richest stocks? And then on, uh, you sent me this, this tweet. I don't know if it was this week or last week, but you sent me this tweet where people are trying to put stocks or companies on Mount Rushmore and saying like, what, if you could skip an MBA and study these companies, what would you, what would you put yeah. on Mount Rushmore and skip? Uh, Jason Zweig, we, can, we can't figure out how to pronounce his name uh, from that, Wall Street Journal. That's right. That's right. Um, I think he tweeted back and said like, don't just study successes, look at failures. Everyone no talks about, everyone talks about the successes and the successes are like 90% luck. Like everyone's out there trying to be Musk and Musk is crazy, as we just talked about, in a good way sometimes. But he just burned a billion and a half dollars, in my opinion. Yeah, so I'm happy. I think people should talk about failure more because for every a hundred am or for every one Amazon, there's a thousand ones that go bust. I love it. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, so here's what I did. I looked at. I always, I always look at returns relative to the market. So take that. So I looked at um, historically companies, stocks, of stock returns relative to the overall stock market. And I looked at a few things. One is I looked at um, companies that, and we'll start this off on the quiz form, yeah. uh, companies all time, basically all time, starting from 1930, right? Through 2020. Yeah. The number of companies each year, if you look at the best performing stock to date, through that year, right? Does that make sense? So this is a just a twelve month period. No, all time. So if you take each year, so let's oh, so in nineteen forty, okay. what are the best yeah. performing stocks from of all time through nineteen forty? Nineteen sixty, what are the right? Looked yeah. at every year from nineteen thirty to twenty twenty. How many companies do you think have ever held the number one spot? Oh damn! So you're saying over the last ninety years. Over the how many companies? Nine, have Ninety-one years, and let me let me let me drop a stat for you, just so you can yeah. have some kind of context. There have been thirty-four thousand six hundred eighty-seven equities that have been traded on major U.S. stock markets during that ninety-one year period. How many equities do you believe held the number one spot? Okay, a logistics question. Um, how are you handling like Standard Oil turning into? something else turning into Exxon, turning into like, you know, like how are you handling those companies that perish? Um, so companies that, that perished will still be on the list. Uh, companies that merge will just be under a new name, but they, they stick around. Okay. Um, I'm going to go 28. Incorrect. <laughs> like way incorrect. Give me one. No, it's actually so, so the, the directionally we'll, we'll just call that right. Because this is getting to your point around you. Not everyone's building an Amazon, right? Like there aren't that many. So there have been fourteen. So like directionally, 14. yeah. So directionally, the the point is like not that many companies like dominate. I, I would say few equities end up dominating. 
And yes. I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll drop another lyric on top of that. So 14 companies have ever held the top spot over 91 years. And two of those companies held the top spot for 68% of those years. So 62 out of the 91 years, only two, comp- two companies like were number one. Can you, Skippy, name those two companies? Uh, Altria Group, guess number one. It's it's two companies. You haven't said even two names yet. So, uh, uh, my second guess includes Standard Oil, Amazon, Monster Beverage. Man, I had a whole list. All right, how how far off am I? Okay, so first of all, uh, one of your guesses hasn't even traded long enough to uh, <laughs> to have done that. Um, but no, so you so you did, and I I was in the same boat. Like before, I ran this. Um, Altria, I had right top of mind. The second one, I, I would not have guessed. I would not have guessed the second one. Nobody gets fired for buying. Oh, IBM. That was there my guess. No, no, that was that not was, your guess. You had a chance yeah, was, to guess and that, did not say that. That. Was, <laughs> that was my guess. Because what IBM did like pre, I think I'm making up numbers here. I don't know, 1995 was they crushed it. it there's a reason they're called big blue hey is ge on that list well when you say is it on the list like was it ever number one is that what you mean yeah yeah uh that's a good question let me let me check it out i will see because you know jack welch was basically like uh not really cooking the books but he was like holding back profits so he could be you know he'd have like a penny earnings per share that he could squeeze out somewhere so he could beat quarter after quarter after quarter so yeah yeah um but it's the thing is that when you're looking at the performance of a stock of all time, like you run into what I like to call the Apple situation, right? Which is Apple over the last like 20, little over 20 years has like crushed, right? But then there was a pretty solid period where they got crushed. And so therefore their all time is, is balanced out. It's still pretty solid. GE did decently well, not even like fantastic, but like decently well under Jack Welch. I think it beat the market by like 3X or something like that. But these these companies are like killing it. I mean, there's not, you have to be hundreds, right? right times let's the get the whole list of 14. Yeah. All right. So some of these, I, I don't know what they do. <laughs> I don't know who they are, um, but we got AJ Industries. My boy, Ultra AJ. Group. Yeah, Altria, yeah. Amazon. Amaretta Petroleum Corp. Cisco. Douglas Cisco. Aircraft. So Cisco, that's like 99, right? Like, from from IPO to 2000, it crushed. And then, like we talked about earlier, it hasn't got back to that level yet. Yep. Uh, Homestake Mining. Ooh, commodities. Dougal's play. Yeah. And this this I know because, uh, <laughs> because of that, yeah. Homestake no longer around, but got bought by Barrett Gold um, is, is when they... Right, so they're now owned by Buffett. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffet. Uh, <laughs> My boy. Houston Oil and Minerals. Okay, lots of oil. IBM, uh, Plenum Publishing, Steel Connect Inc., Ooh. Sykes Datatronics, Vulcan Detinning, and Vulcan Materials. And what's interesting, like going back to the, the point of what we were talking about before, is like stocks generally don't do that great. There are, so there are 14 companies that have held that number one spot. Two of the companies like dominated even during that time, right? I'll drop a couple other lyrics and then, then you can hop in. So, that's on that side. So few equities dominate is the first part of this. The second part is stocks typically fail. So when you, if you look at the, the percent of stocks that beat the market, 
right, over their lifetime, it's under 30%. It's like 28%. Yeah. That means 72% of stocks underperform the overall stock market. Yeah, right. So I'm so glad you went there because um, I'll try and find this for the Twitter account. Again, at Skippy Dougals. Uh, if you look at the breakdown of returns, uh, you're going to see a long tail to the right-hand side of the chart. Those companies like Amazon and the 14 you just listed. And then a bunch of stuff that fails. So this is why studying failure is important. And this is why Jason Swig is really bright, in my opinion. Mostly because he's been writing about this stuff for 40 plus years, I think. Um, you gotta take into account the fact that you're more likely to lose money than you are to make money when you buy individual stock. This is why buying individual stocks is a bad idea for most people. And many stocks, and a stock could could not stick around because for success reasons, right? It could get acquired, you know, at its height. It could also not stick around for failure reasons. I think failure is more typical. Um, but only only 27% of any equity is around 15 years later. It's still public 15 years yeah. later, right? Um, and, and we know a lot of people that are jumping in right now are not necessarily long-term investors. They're thinking about getting that dollar tomorrow, right? Complaining about their fidelity options taking too long to get approved. Uh, we, we've mentioned Jim Collins before. He also wrote a book, wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. And that book was about companies that he'd written about how they became great on the decline, um, yeah. which, which is interesting. I think that's fascinating. There was also, uh, this is going back a little bit, so I'm, I'm testing my, my mentals. Um, but when um, I was looking at failures a few years ago and why in some industries, like some companies fail and just why some individual companies fail. And I found like one of the, in an article that has stuck with me for so long, it was the, um, the black box transcript of the Florida air flight that crashed. Do you remember that? That, that, do you remember that that happened? You probably don't remember when it happened, but do you remember I that think, that happened? I think I know where you're going with this. And so Florida Air was a, an airline based in Florida uh, about, I think it was in the early 1980s uh, is when, the, when this occurred. And there was this big uh, plane crash that happened with one of their flights. And basically what happened was um, the, the wings were, like the weather wasn't good and the wings weren't de-iced. Uh, properly and the plane went down a lot of people died it's very not positive uh, Florida Air did not last um, but what was fascinating was looking at this black box transcript it was the conversation between the pilot and the co-pilot and basically talking about whether or not they should take off and it's chilling right because we all know at the end what occurs but the the big takeaway for me was that the co-pilot basically didn't speak up like the, yes. the co-pilot was putting out like little nuggets of like, I don't know if it's good. I don't know. But like, but didn't like stand their ground. Right. Which is hard. I'm not, I'm not blaming the co-pilot. Right. But, but I think it's really hard. And going back to your question of why, right. Is it hubris? Is it this? Is it that? Um, sometimes it's, it's like knowing the right thing, but the right thing can be difficult or the right thing. You might not want to step over that line. Um, I also, if you haven't read this Skippy or anyone in the audience, I highly recommend um, the Challenger launch launch decision book. It's called the Challenger launch decision. Ooh, um, okay. I think Diane Vaughn, I think, is the name of the author. But it's it's a thick book, right? Um, very thick. So, and it's about a space shuttle launch. And so, like, buckle up and get ready to to read a lot of pages about this. Um, but it but it's basically about um, how teams 
can make decisions and get and get caught up and not end up listening to um, to certain advice because momentum, uh, like momentum and inertia, are pointing in a certain direction. And the and the and winning, if you go in that direction, sounds like such a high yeah. that any any voice against that win like comes across as a strong neg, and that's hard to go with. Can you can you Skippy make any analogies to the stock market today? Oh. <laughs> Like every day, man. Any. Um, <laughs> I would just want to tie in and say thank you for dropping knowledge. There's a, a brilliant, I'll find the book, but there's a, a book that does very similar things that talks about, you know, to be a pilot, you have to speak English, right? English is the worldwide language of flying. Uh, but they break down some different cultures who are more respected, respectful of the authority figures and they have dove into some crash tra- transcripts, exactly like you're talking about, where the co-pilot was not as willing to speak up because of some cultural preference. Really fascinating stuff. So in the training, uh, in some of those far off places, they now have to break down the barriers of this respectfulness uh, because it's actually safer for the people on the plane. So uh, sorry, I wanted to put that in. Parallel to the stock market with the Challenger book. I mean, uh, Grantham says in that interview, he says, like, by definition, each day that the stock market is going up at the peak of the bubble, there's more euphoria than the previous day. And, and that's true. I mean, right now, we, so the perfect parallel here um, is the contractors that will no longer show up to their day job to make 20 to 25 bucks an hour because they've uh, pulled out their Robin hood. They're buying pretty much anything under the sun and they're making more money day trading than they are with like a honest, hardworking job. Um, when this blows up, man, it is going to be spectacular. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. Uh, when you, we talk, we just, we mentioned the phrase earlier, um, that nobody gets fired for buying IBM. I mean, that that's a, it's a lot of where we are right now when stuff is going up into the right and you are a professional investor or a retail investor if you're not buying in, you're going to get yelled at, right? Like you, you have to ride this because you're going to get yelled at if, if you, if you miss out on some returns, right? But the, the brilliance of Mr. Buffet, right, is be greedy when others are fearful. Be fearful when others are greedy. Oh, now we got Dougals over here pretending to be a value investor. What a clown! Come on, Dougals. You know the uh, Morgan Housel. Am I saying that right? Uh, Quote on that, it's like Monday, quote, Buffett, I'm butchering this, Tuesday, quote, Klarman, and Thursday, quote, the Bible, right? I mean, when this crashes, all the Buffett quotes in your hat are not going to save you, Dougals. Thanks for listening. And if you listen on iTunes, uh, shoot us a review. Only a five-star review, of course. Shout out to my people in Guatemala. 